0: You are listening to the Entrepreneurial Thought Leader Series, brought to you weekly by the Stanford Technology Ventures Program. You can find podcasts and video clips of these lectures online at edcorner.stanford.edu. It is now my wonderful pleasure to introduce our terrific speaker today. Tom Telly comes to us from IDEO, IDEO, which is probably a stone's throw from Stanford, and uh, a really good friend of the Stanford community. Uh, If you don't know about IDEO, IDEO has designed uh, so many products that you probably use in your everyday life, everything from the Crest neat squeeze tube to the original Palm 5 and the mouse, but they also have done a lot of really amazing things recently where they've been designing things well beyond products. They design experiences. They work with the Red Cross to design the whole uh, blood donation process, or they'll design the uh, office of the future. And uh, Tom has been at uh, IDEO for 21 years. He works there with his brother uh, David, who was the founder of IDEO, and they, he's been there since the company was just a handful of design and now has 350 people there. Tom also is the author of two really interesting books. One of them is called The Art of Innovation. And I actually use the book as a textbook in my course on creativity and innovation. And uh, his second book is The Ten Faces of Innovation. And uh, Tom has agreed to stick around afterwards to sign books. There are books going to be on sale outside. But in addition, we have a special surprise because a handful of you in this room, uh, selected randomly, will get some signed copies for free. So stick around after the talk, and I'll tell you how that's going to happen. So without further ado, Tom Kelly. Tom Kelly.
1: Well, hi, good afternoon. So I'm going to talk today about staying young at heart. I'm going to talk about how to be an innovator for life. And I have to confess, this is all a bit experimental, in the sense that this is the first time that I'll be covering most of this material. And I would love to have had another, oh, I don't know, month or so, to let some of these ideas just percolate along in the back of my mind. But we don't have a month, right? Because the Global Innovation Tournament starts today. So... um, so you know, if you think of this as a kind of an experiment, we know not all experiments succeed, but I, I, I'm hoping that this one, that this one will. And so, all of my previous writing, my research, my speaking has been about this, you know, ideos approach to innovation in an organizational setting. You know, and so I've had a great conversation with lots of teams and team leaders. In fact, I've sat across the desk from over 1,500 client groups to talk about innovation but what's new today is i'm going to try to apply it at the personal level right innovation made personal i'm going to try to apply it to individuals specifically to young creative individuals like we of which we have many in the room whose careers and whose lives are just radiating possibilities right now you know you've got so much in front of you so many opportunities i was over at the uh, Coho, the coffee shop the other day, and they've got these pictures on the walls of the, what they gauge to be the most famous Stanford grads ever. And uh, some of them are like movie actors, and some of them are, uh, you know, recognizable founders of, of big companies. But I'm thinking, you know, in the room today, there are people who will have their their picture up on that wall. We just don't know which of you it is. Right? And so... I know given the you know the age of many in the audience is in, in the audience not many of you have at least fallen very deeply into any particular ruts just yet yet but you know you'll have the chance to do that later but so my message today is mainly about nurturing or building or reinforcing your creative potential your your creativity your capacities for innovation so that they can stand the test of time and the I think both the good news and the bad news on this young at heart thing comes from Pablo Picasso, who said a long time ago, he said, you know, every child is an artist. The problem is how to remain an artist once you grow up, right? And I think what Picasso was talking about is that as you get older and his responsibilities start piling onto you, the next thing you know, it will almost seem as if circumstances are conspiring against you. Right? There are forces like erosion and things, that, you know, and, and uh, entropy that, that try to chip away at your creative energy. But if you're willing to work at it a little bit, you can reinforce your abilities. You can, you can prevent that from happening or you can at least fight against those, those, those forces as a way to stay young at heart. One of my favorite books on creativity and innovation is by a guy named Gordon McKenzie. It's called Orbiting the Giant Hairball. Anybody ever read this book? Uh, Not too many. Currently out of stock at the uh, Stanford bookstore in case anybody's interested in like dashing over there to get it. But anyhow, Gordon McKenzie, great guy. Um, He was an artist. He was also, he worked most of his career at Hallmark Cards. But he's an artist. And he made these, these really funky but fun sculptures. He welded together out of rusted steel. And what he would do is he spoke to a lot of school groups. And I mean grade school groups. And so he'd go and he was prepared to do what of what I'm not sure I would be prepared to do, which is he was prepared to speak to each class individually. Which is to say he started with the kindergarten kids in the morning and then he spoke to the first graders and the second graders and the third graders and the fourth graders until he got to the sixth graders late in the day. He must have been really tired by that point. But he asked them, he started the same way with all of the groups. He started the same ways and he said, look, I'm an artist and I love to be around other artists. And he says, I look at your walls and you've got art on the walls, so there must be artists here. He says, anybody here an artist? Right, and he's asking the kindergartners, right? And some of you can remember kindergarten, others you can can remember kindergarten for your kids. And what do kindergartners do? Everybody in the class is up like this. Yeah, yeah, I'm an artist, I'm an artist, right? Everybody is in the class an artist. They're not just an artist, they're an enthusiastic artist. Right? And so he does that again to the first graders and still every hand is up. Not as much dancing around, not as many double hand raises, but everybody's still an artist. And he says, you get to the second grade was where you have your first little bit of attrition. Not every single kid raised their hand. You get to the third grade and the fourth grade and the fifth grade. End of the day, he gets to the sixth graders. And these kids are old enough to understand this. He asked the question about who's an artist when he asked the question of the sixth graders, there's only two hands go up. And the people, the kids raising their two hands, they're looking around, kind of nervously to see if they're going to be judged by their peers. And so Gordon McKenzie asked the sixth graders, he says, hey, what happened to all the artists in this school? He said, do all the other artists transfer out? He said, do all the other artists go to art school? He says, I don't think so. He said, I think something much worse. He said, I think someone or something has told you it's not okay to be an artist. And he said, if you don't remember anything else I say today, he said, I want you to go home and remember it's okay to be an artist. And so this is part of my message today. It's okay to be an artist. right? It's okay to be an innovator. It's okay to be a design thinker, even if it causes people around you to raise their eyebrows. Right, Especially if it causes people around you to raise their eyebrows. You know, I have a personal story about this. My wife, Yumi, is a Japanese immigrant. She had um, she'd never been to America when I met her. In fact, she'd barely been out of Japan when I met her long ago and far away in an Australian bus stop. Right? But after Yumi moved to America, she would occasionally have this thing she would say to me, I was misbehaving in some way. I was you know, being you know, the innovator or something and she would say, Oh, Tamsan, you are like a child, right? And looking back on it, I'm sure she meant that as a criticism, right? But I took it as a high compliment. Like a child, that's pretty good, right? And we've managed to live happily ever after for a pretty long time using this technique of taking the bad things that the other person says to you and, and interpret it in a good way, right? In fact, it was 20 years ago, exactly. In fact, it was 20 years ago, almost to this hour, in which her parents crossed the Pacific for the first time in their lives and my parents I can say this my parents crossed America so that they could meet up here in San Francisco so that we could have an international wedding so 20 years ago today I gotta get out of here after I'm done talking so I can take my wife out to dinner so but uh, But if you think back to it, even with her broken English 20 years ago, my wife still got it linguistically correct when she said, you are like a child, right? She said, you know, that's like childlike, right? Because in the English language, we make a pretty big distinction between childlike, which is all positive in my mind, and childish, which is pretty negative. It translates pretty much as selfish. So if you want to be an innovator for life, be childlike as often as possible, but childish not too often, Right, as, as little as you can. So this is partly this idea about Innovator for Life, this idea of building up momentum is partly about starting good habits. So just as you could start now, you know, with a good habit that relates to health and wellness. If you could, starting today, eat edamame, as we do at our house, you might imagine, instead of uh, potato chips or pork rinds or whatever your, uh, your snack of choice is, if you could do that and start that habit and continue it on, that would contribute to your health and wellness over the course of your life. Right. In the same way, you can start mental or behavioral habits that will help you be an innovator for life. And so it's really about forming habits now that are going to help you later on. And I came up with five habits. I'm sure if you put your mind to it, you could come up with a lot more. But for purposes of the time we have available to us, I think five will be plenty. You want it to be seven plus or minus two if you've read that research. And so uh, five, uh, nice and easy. And the first one... One of maybe my favorite of them is think like a traveler, right? It's easy for me to do this. I spend hundred nights a year away from home, and so I think like a traveler all the time. I, I'm on a plane. But what I mean when I say think like a traveler is, ever notice when you go to a distant city, especially when you travel internationally, ever notice that there's a piece of your brain that is turned up on high, right? You're in this hyper-aware state where you notice everything. Right? You notice how the coins and the money is different. It's all better than the money in America, by the way. You know, it's a, we got a, a billion graphic designers or something in America. This is the best we can do? Our money is all green? I can't figure that out. But, anyhow, coins, we can't do the dollar coin. Anyhow, don't get me started. So, you notice that the money is different. You notice the shoes are different. In fact, when you're overseas, it's almost the surefire way to spot an American is look at their shoes. I don't know why. We, we always have different shoes than people in Europe or Asia. Or, Whatever. You notice the way they serve coffee is different. You notice the trains are different. You you know, little bits of things and your brain is on high alert. It must have something to do with evolution or, you know, looking out for predators or something. Because when you are traveling internationally, that part of your brain is super active, right? And Uh, you know, Tina, I don't know if anybody realizes this, actually a neuroscientist, I bet she could tell us which part of the brain it is. I don't really care. All I'm saying is, whatever part of that brain is that is super active when you're traveling internationally, try to turn up that part of your brain all the time. Right? Because if, if you can do that, if you can have a higher state of awareness that people around you have, you will spot more opportunities and those opportunities will will have value for you. So, you know, if you can observe more, if you can can learn more, if you can get a better or more up-to-date, we'll come back to that in a minute, a more up-to-date view of human behavior, that gives you power, that gives you credibility as an innovator. Because something that's going to happen to most of the students in the room is you're going to someday soon join an organization in which people are twice your age and have 10 times your experience. And they will mentally try to use that against you. Right? And you might find that ever so slightly intimidating, but just remember this, if you capture your ideas, if you write them down, if you, you know, find some way not to have your observations run down the drain, and everybody's got a different way of doing this, for me, Shows you how old I am maybe. It's, for me, it's a piece of paper. It's a little pad in my back pocket. But for you, it could be something on your smartphone. It could be something on your laptop. It could be something in your blog. But if you can capture those things and then use them as you, as you try to make contributions to organizations, you've got to remember, you are the world, you know, undisputed expert of your own experience. So try to capture the lessons from your experiences, you will be able to use those in, in organizational settings. So that's this idea about about uh, thinking like a traveler. You know I think uh, Yogi Berra, former catcher for the New York Yankees, I say, he kind of addressed this issue when he said you can observe a lot by watching. And I like Yogi Berra. He liked that phrase so much he, that's what he called his book by the way. But I think I get more value from this other guy. From this writer Marcel Proust who said The real act of discovery consists not in finding new lands, that's traveling, right? But in seeing with new eyes, which is thinking like a traveler. And wow, this seeing with new eyes thing, it gets harder. The older you get, the harder this becomes. So you, you know, joining new organizations, this is something you can offer to everybody. They don't want your advice right away, from my experience. But keep track of it. Keep track of your thoughts. What surprised you? What disappointed you? What seemed weird? about the business or the, the organization you are entering because you'll be able to use that, that later. And so this is this, this freshness, At idea we call it the eggs teaching the chickens. You know, people who don't know, quote, the way things are done often have big ideas about how to change them. But the flip side of this is when people have been working in their careers for a very long time, right, and what happens is they develop deep expertise. And that deep expertise is extremely valuable to the organization. But in the process of developing that deep expertise, they start screening stuff out. They start trying to eliminate, quote, distractions from the way things are. And therein lies a problem. And so the A.G. Laffley, CEO of Procter & Gamble, used to bring his senior management team out to visit IDEO in California once a year. 40 of the most senior people in this great consumer products company. And we would say to them, look, You know more about your business than we are ever going to learn, right? But for purposes of today, if we're going to do these observations together, we want you to set aside some of what we know. We want you to see with new eyes. In fact, we even have an expression to describe this state of mind that we try to get people into to see with new eyes. We borrowed this expression, by the way, from Bob Sutton. Anybody know Bob? Uh, I'm just guessing lots of people. Anyhow, borrowed from Bob Sutton. Bob and turn borrowed from a guy you may have heard of named George Carlin. You know there's this, there's this well-known expression, there's an expression from the dictionary used around the world, untranslated from the French. I um, spoke uh, last year, year before last, I spoke in 16 countries and in all 16 countries they use this expression déjà vu, right? You've heard of déjà vu? Been there before, right? This is the opposite of deja vu. It's called vouja day. Right? <laughs> vouja is when you're in a place you've been a million times before and you're seeing it with fresh eyes. And you start asking, gee, why do we do it this way? Why is it always that way? We're like, you know, and so, if you can get this, this concept, this state of mind called vouja it helps you to think like a traveler, it helps you to see with, with fresh eyes. So, Here's some good news about this think-like-a-traveler thing. About the, you know, because it, you know, If you have time to go out and get a PhD in something like oh, ethnography or cultural anthropology, I recommend it. We have lots of those people at IDEO. They're brilliant people. Their work is very interesting. I have learned a lot from them. So if you want to go for the PhD in that, that's a good idea. Uh, in fact, I would really urge you to take at least one anthropology course before you leave campus. But, the good news is you can do this, right? With, because I've had zero courses in anthropology and yet I've discovered not only can I switch into this mode this anthropologist mode, this think like a traveler mode, not only can I switch into it I have trouble switching out of it. I'm always in this mode trying to you know, like write things down and look at you know, what's happening in the world around me with respect to human behavior. So this is, I was in uh, Paris, uh, this is actually a couple years ago now and I go to the Paris airport, Charles de Gaulle. Anybody been to that airport? Oh, lots. Anybody like that airport? Not me. Anyhow, it turns out, I just figured this out last summer, it's two airports. There's this really ugly old round one that they make us Americans go to. The one that I'm talking about here, there's actually quite a nice Terminal 2 next door that I never saw. It's like they wouldn't let me in because they saw my passport was from somewhere else. Anyhow... So I'm talking about the old one, you go to the old one, it's in the circle, I get around two or three times getting lost, but eventually you get out and you take this train into town. And I love that they've got the train into town worked out so well. We're not very good at that in the US, but they've got this train and it's safe and it's fast and it's clean and it costs seven euros. I think they raised it to eight this year. So it's all good, except for one thing. Except for if you want to get on that train in the airport, If you wanna get on that train and go into town, you gotta get past these turnstiles. And hard as this is to imagine, I can't can't process this in my brain, hard as this is to imagine as nearly as I can tell, the architects, the engineers, the designers who created this train station in the airport, I guess it never crossed their mind that people arriving in the biggest airport in the country, for God's sake, were gonna have, you know, luggage. Right? And so what I experienced was it was damn near impossible to get through that turnstile with my two bags. And I, you know, I travel pretty light. And so although I was kind of anxious to get into Paris, I actually hung out in the airport for 15 minutes to watch how other people did it. And I can report in 15 minutes of watching, zero, zero people made it through that turnstile easily the first time. I saw gambits, you know, I saw strategies. The most important one, the most successful one not being used by this couple is the two-person method. As in, honey, you go through first and I'll pass you the bags. Right? I saw solo travelers toss their bag across the turnstile. <laughs> At IDEO, that's what we call a drop test. Right? You see if your computer can stand up to four feet onto concrete. Right? <laughs> but I saw zero people, zero people make it through there easily. But here's why it's, you know, vouja day, Here's why it relates to thinking like a traveler, because there are people who work in that airport every day. They've been working there for years, and they never even noticed that this was a problem. Right? And I don't think it's just because they're French people. Right? (laughs) So I, I work just down the street from Paul Sappho at the Institute of the Future. And Paul says, I don't know who it was that discovered water, but I'm sure it was not a fish. Right? You get immersed in your environment and you stop seeing stuff and this is where you, with your new eyes, this is where you thinking like a traveler, you can spot stuff and say hey look at that, hey look at that, what did we just see there and sometimes the answer to what did we just see there is an opportunity. Right? And so you know, I encourage you to keep that part of your brain turned up on high because you can get value from it, it can enhance your credibility, your power. Uh, as an innovator out there. And just so you don't think that this is a mental exercise because of course having spotted this in the French train station at the airport nobody's actually asking me to do anything about it, right? And so at that point all I'm really doing is exercising my muscle, right? I'm developing that part of my brain so that when it comes around to something that does matter you know, we can apply it. And so here's a case, I I have 4,000 cases like this at IDEO I'll pick just this one, it's quite a simple one but I think it illustrates the point. About 10 years ago we got approached by one of the largest uh, oral healthcare companies in America, a company you've probably heard of called Oral-B, and they said, look, we'd like a new kid's toothbrush because ours is starting to get commoditized. It looks like a lot of kids' toothbrushes out there and you can't have that. We want to be special. right?" So we say, okay, we'll do this. We want to go out in the field and do some field research. And they're kind of not sure about that. Like, it's not rocket science. We're talking about kids brushing their teeth. How hard could that be, right? They would really like us to stop fooling around and start designing, right? But we want to go through this process, this observation process, because we think almost always you can spot opportunities. And so we go out, and we're on, like, the first day of observations, and we make a small discovery. The small discovery we make is that every kid's toothbrush in the history of the world has had the same implicit assumption it's a logical assumption it just isn't exactly right which is the assumption always was parents have big hands kids have small hands and so when you want to make the kids version make it like the parents brush only smaller and skinnier perfectly logical until you go out in the field until you actually watch humans, little tiny humans, brushing their teeth. And what you notice right away you get a five-year-old boy brushing his teeth, he's not holding his toothbrush in his fingertips the way mom and dad do, he's fisting it. He's holding it like this because he doesn't have the dexterity, he doesn't have the fine motor controls that his parents have and so he's got to hold it like this. In fact, the other thing he does is he holds the brush too far up very frequently, and so he's punching himself in the face as he's trying to brush his teeth, and we solved that problem, too. But the main thing was, came back in the field and said, uh-oh, kids don't need little skinny toothbrushes. Kids need big, fat toothbrushes, right? Let's make them big, fat, squishy toothbrushes. And you may have noticed, now every toothbrush company in the world makes these, but our, our client reports that after we made that little, tiny discovery out in the field, sitting in a bathroom watching a five-year-old boy brush his teeth, they had the best-selling kid's toothbrush in the world for 18 months. So when you think about power, when you think about, you know, credibility, if you could go out in the field and do that observation and come up with that finding and your company, your organization was the best in its field for 18 months afterwards, would that be worth it? I think that would be worth it, and so that's this message about think like a traveler, be an anthropologist, use your powers of observation, have that part of your brain turned up as high as you can uh, all all along. So that's the first one. Promise not to spend as long on the next, but the, the second one is called think like an. I mean, is uh, treat life as an experiment, and this is partly about risk. This is a partly about actually being willing to fail. Because experiments, as I said earlier, they're not all successes. That's why they call them experiments, right? And so if you treat life an experiment, you've got to be prepared for some stuff not to work out. You know, I'm a, an author and I take this approach with books, too, because you, can, you go to a bookstore and you look at the books, you know, the average book is like 300 pages long, that can be intimidating. If you, you know, if mom raised you that once you start something, you've got to finish it, then a 300-page book, there's some big risk in cracking it open. Right? Whereas if you treat that as an experiment and say, look, I'm just going to read the first 10 pages and then see how I feel, and if that's good, I'm going to continue, right? Then a book is not so scary. Then next thing you know, you read 10, 20, and 30, and if it's a good book, you get all the way through it, right? But what got you into it in the first place is you were willing to treat it as an experiment. Because if you go whole hog, if you got to you know, do the whole thing, mm, that. That scares people away. And so you can go through your whole life with this method. Of, it's like, look, I'm going to try this. I can put up with anything for a day. I can, you know, I'm going to see how this works. And so you get in the habit of you're failing, but ideally you're failing forward. You're failing in a way that has a little bit of learning attached to each one. And historically, the most famous guy in this experimenter category here in the U.S. is this guy, right? Thomas Edison, right? And do we tend to think of Thomas Edison as a success? Right? I think we do. I think he's the most prolific inventor in the history of America. He made, you know, light bulbs, of course, we all know. Phonographs, he's, you know, he had a whole long list of things including tattoo pens. In fact, I think we're still using Edison's design today in the tattoo pen department. He also left us General Electric, which is going pretty strong uh, still after all these years, 120 years or whatever it is. But Edison, we think of him a success, No, he was piling up all kinds of failures. He wouldn't use that word. At one point in his life, he said, well, I haven't failed. I've just found 10,000 ways that do not work. He was trying to come up with the, the filament for an electric light bulb. 10,000 things he tried. Think how frustrating that must have been. Well, he stuck with it. We, you know, and It worked out pretty well in the end. So he treated life as an experiment. He had this great group, this great team around him, and they were doing multiple experiments every day until they came up with a success. And the fact that one of them failed, no big deal. I got 9,000 other failures out there, right? And so Edison, way long time ago, so some people especially... People the age of some of the people in the room think, oh, that's a 19th century example. Don't talk to me about that. Here's two examples from the 20th century that have spilled over into the 21st century. WD-40. Anybody have any WD-40 at home? Right? I I suppose it's not that convenient in dorm rooms, but trust me, almost every house in America has got WD-40. I spoke in Brazil recently, and they all had WD-40 in their houses. Ever think about the name? I didn't, right? WD, that's, well, That's obvious because it's an oil, right? So it does water displacement, right? Catchy, name only an engineer could love. Anyhow, WD, but the 40 is what I want to talk about. 40 is because the first 39 formulas failed. They stuck with it through 39 failures. They got to formula number 40 and they did darn good with that one, right? This is a consumer product unchanged for about 50 years. You never get a chance to do that, but WD 40 did. And then that is nothing compared to this guy. James Dyson. Anybody ever seen his cyclonic vacuums? They reportedly work pretty well. Anyhow, lots of people. Okay. Anyhow, James Dyson, if you read his book, Jim Dyson says he had 5,128 failures. 5,128 prototypes before he had something he could sell. Man, that must have taken a long time, right? But he did pretty well in the end. one of the richest guys in the UK because his products ended up being such a tremendous success but 5128 failures along the way I got two questions I ever meet Jim Dyson I'm asking him two things the first thing is why did you keep track right once I get over a thousand failures I would just say lots you know lots I don't need to know that when I'm up 5,000 failures just a lot of failures right but way more important than that which relates to my comment earlier is was he married at the time? Right, because that is one patient spouse. I can just see her saying, Jim, get out of the garage and get a job, right? But, but he didn't, and uh, he stuck with it. He had lots of failures. He was willing to tolerate lots of failures, and it worked out pretty well for him in the end. So uh, that brings us to number three, which I also stole from Bob Sutton, who, uh, with, with his permission. I was over in Bob's office at the D School earlier today, and Bob's got this idea that I love, that I've fully adopted called having an attitude of wisdom. By the way, those of you who don't know Bob, he's the one on the right with the clothes on. (laughs) Anyhow, um, Bob's got this idea of an attitude of wisdom, which is a healthy balance between confidence in what you know and distrusting what you know just enough that keeps you thirsty for more knowledge. Because we've all met people in their lives who they get to be an expert, right? They develop this deep expertise, and then they want to rest on their laurels. I know a lot about that. I don't need to know more, right? And I bet you've encountered some people like that. In lives. And this resting on your laurels, especially with respect to learning, never a good idea. In fact, if you think about it, resting on your laurels, it wasn't even a good idea back when they had the laurel wreaths. You know, we get that from like Julius Caesar's time where when something good happened, you get, to, you get to wear the wreath of laurels, right? But think about it. So Julius Caesar, case in point, right? Julius Caesar, 44 BC, he's made Emperor for life, right? Imagine, that's a happy day, right? <laughs> emperor for life, doesn't have a nice ring to it, right? You're not just emperor for life of Lithuania, right? You're emperor for life of the most powerful empire in the world, right? Being president of the US is nothing like that. You know, you got eight years, you've got to give it up, right? So he's emperor for life. He is the happiest, proudest guy in the world on that day. And he, you know what? He remained emperor for life but his friends killed him a month later, right? And so resting on your laurels, even back then, bad idea, can't, certainly can't do it now. So on this attitude of wisdom, I think, you know, the very quotable Mark Twain, I love Twain, I don't even know if he said all that stuff, but if he did, I just want to follow him around writing stuff down as he said it. <laughs> he said at one point in his life, he said, it's not what you don't know that gets you into trouble, it's what you know for sure that ain't so, right? And this know for sure stuff, can be really a problem for lots of people. I was in, um, I was in Istanbul recently with a very charismatic uh, executive vice president at Best Buy, you know, a big retailer. And he told a story from before he joined the organization. He told this story about one of these things that you know for sure that ain't so. Apparently, in 2001, Best Buy, then as now, the largest consumer electronics retailer in America. Right? So they know a lot about consumer electronics, they know a lot about people buying media, things like that. They want to expand their influence. And so they're looking around with their mergers and acquisitions hat on and they find this company called Musicland. Musicland, really big deal. They own Sam Goody stores. You know, they were a force to be reckoned with at the time. They had 1,300 stores. Biggest retailer of audio CDs and DVDs in America. And the boy, the management team at Best Buy thought this was really strategic. They were willing to pay billions of dollars for Musicland because it expanded their empire. It was so good. 2001 this is. Right, because they're confident, they know, they know, what, how, you know how people buy consumer electronics, they know about media purchases, except for one thing the management team probably in their 40s and 50s at Best Buy in uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota, they hadn't noticed that there was this little company called Napster started in 1999 two years before their purchase and that this this sea change had already started happening. In fact it was well underway in 2001 when they made the purchase that you know 18 to 30 year olds had basically stopped buying CDs completely and were downloading their music online in mp3s. And so this very smart group of people, I've met some of the management team, and they're they're very smart people, take nothing away from them, but they make this strategic mistake because they were were sure that they knew about their market. And Cal Patel, this uh, executive vice president telling the story, says, before the dust settled, five years later, when Musicland went bankrupt, Best Buy had lost a billion dollars. Right, so they lost a billion dollars because they were overconfident in their knowledge of the market. And he says, the really ironic thing of this is the trend had started with 18 to 30-year-olds. He said, ever been in one of our stores? He says, who's working in there? 18 to 30-year-olds. He says, in other words, not only do we miss the trend that happened in the world, our own employees knew about it but the, the information didn't filter up to the management team and he said you know we will make more mistakes in the future of Best Buy but he says we won't make that one again we won't get over convent or knowledge we won't overlook data about trends that exists within our own team and so that's just the thing about things that you, that you, you know, know for sure that ain't so so I got invited about 2000 or 2001 I got invited to go to this think tank in Singapore it's called the Islands Forum and I said to one of my friends at the time gee This will be fun. I really know Singapore, right? I had lived in Singapore, working for Singapore Airlines in the 1980s and so I was really, you know, like looking forward to that, going back to this place that I knew. And I wasn't off that plane five minutes at Chang'e Airport where I used to work for Singapore Airlines before it occurred to me, no duh, I don't know Singapore. I know Singapore 1985 and if you haven't looked lately Singapore 1985 doesn't exist anymore right and so I'm walking around with this 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 misperception that I have knowledge that is in fact way out of date and so as you get older, you've got to continuously hold up your worldview against, you know, the actual world that's out there to see where, where they disagree. And where they do disagree, you've got to continuously adjust your point of view. You've got to have an attitude of wisdom that allows you to adjust your point of view when the world turns a little bit when you're not looking. And so having learned that lesson, I'm quite sensitive to it, of, of having the, the, the idea that I'm smart about something when I'm really the opposite. So, uh, let's see. We had think like a traveler. We had treat life as an experiment. We had an attitude of wisdom. Number four has two parts, actually. Part one is use your whole brain, right? And since your K-12 through education was so good at developing your left brain analytical skills, anybody from the law school or the business school here? You know, very good at that. You know, like, let's continue refining. Let's continue exercising, fine-tuning your left brain. But in fact... There's lots of opportunities out there for your right brain to make its mark, right? Uh, Roger Martin at the University of Toronto calls it the opposable brain, you know, applying the left brain and right brain at the same time. And what I'd really love to do at this point is there was a there was a wonderful uh, presentation at the um, TED conference in Monterey this year, a woman named Jill Bolte-Taylor, where she's talking about how the left brain and the right brain, she says they're really pretty separate and she'll, she says, oh, let me show you what I mean. And she turns, there's a little screen here, and she turns behind the screen and she comes out with a brain, with a human brain with the, with the, um, the, uh, the cord, the spinal cord hanging down and I'm thinking, you don't see that every day, <laughs> right? So I, I wish I had the brain here I could hold out, but basically since your left brain is already very well taken care of this whole-brained approach that Dan Pink talks about in his great book, A Whole New Mind, uh, it's really talking about bringing your right brain into play. And I'm going to go out on a limb and predict that the winners of this year's Global Innovation Tournament, they're going to use a lot of right brain intuitive skills as part of their successful entry. So, that, oh, so that's part one, use your whole brain. But part two is use this thing that Guy Claxon calls your tortoise mind. He's this great book, it's called Hair Brain, Tortoise Mind, and he says the hair brain is the one you know really well. Hair brain, that's the brain you can focus, you can concentrate with, is under your direct control. But he says there's this other part of your brain that is not under your direct control, that's actually smarter than the hair brain. He calls it the tortoise mind. And this is where contemplation happens. This is where rumination happens. Your tortoise mind is working on things in the background, All the time, and you can, if you work at it, you can actually assign little tasks to the tortoise mind. There are people who are really good at this. They'll write a question down before they go to sleep, in the hopes that their brain will work on it overnight and maybe come up with an answer. So, um, you know, there there are ways if you can if you can address the tortoise mind, you can you can do things with it. I think that you know it's partly got the metaphor of growing an idea from seed, right? I worked on a a farm in North Dakota one time. We were growing wheat, and you know all the concentration in the world, all the heat and light and moisture and fertilizer and everything you apply to that, you're not gonna grow that wheat overnight. It just doesn't happen. It's not, in the, it's not in the realm of possibility. Growing wheat, just like growing certain kind of ideas, takes time. And you, you, try to, you try to build the right greenhouse, you try to build the right atmosphere, but you can't always accelerate the process. And so there are researchers now looking into the science of epiphany, right? People have these flashes of brilliance. Uh, Allegedly, you know, uh, Newton is under the apple tree and the apple falls and he suddenly it's a fully formed point of view about the, you know, the idea called gravity. I seriously doubt that it happened exactly that way, but there are epiphanies. There are aha moments, and what's really happening in that aha moment, according to the neuroscientists looking into this, is it's not like you had a lightning bolt come down and deliver all that knowledge to you. It's that your tortoise mind has been working on this for days or weeks or months or in some cases even years, and you've just crossed the finish line. You've just gotten to a place where you say, oh, it's obvious now, isn't it? but it wasn't obvious for the previous you know however many number of years so here's the thing is if your mind is running like this like Grand Central Station it is a big distraction to the tortoise mind right because you, you, the tortoise mind needs a little space and so what you have to do and this is sometimes easier said than done you gotta find you gotta find a way to take some time to day- daydream I had this for me personally I, I I early in my ideal career I was commuting from San Francisco now I can ride my bike to work and that's really quick You know, I don't have to listen to those radio shows about, you know, where, you know, there's big traffic on, uh, you know, the Caldecott Tunnel or whatever because I, you know, I got an eight minute bike ride. But in the old days I had something approaching an hour commute and I got addicted to to audiobooks. Anybody else like audiobooks? I really got addicted. I listened to 300 audiobooks. I loved them. Basically, you leave me alone for a minute in a car or, you know, anywhere else the the book is on. And that was all good. It was really entertaining. I still love them. But when I started working on my first book, I realized that those audiobooks were kind of crowding out, you know, they were taking up all my attention. They were crowding out my ability to daydream. And so I actually dialed them way back in order to turn up my creative powers to write my first book, right? And so it's this this chance of, you know, taking some time to daydream so that you can engage that that tortoise mind, which is, you know, That brings me to the other thing which is related to this daydream thing, which is finding your muse, right? So I have a set of things I could tell you, I could write them down, but it almost is irrelevant what my set of characteristics are that that allow me to be most creative. But as part of your journey of self-discovery, really important for you to figure out for you what, what unique set of circumstances help you be most creative, and it can be a whole host of things. It can be a certain type of music. I wrote two-thirds of my, current, my first book listening to something called Brian Eno's Music for Airports. <laughs> I doubt that that will work for you. It really helped me a lot, right? It's about figuring out, do you like a lot of stimulus or do you like a lot of quiet? Are you best at certain times of day? You know, if you figure out through self-discovery that you are the most productive or the most creative between 8 a.m. and 10 a.m. in the morning, then for God's sake, don't spend a minute doing email during those two hours. Don't go to anything called a status meeting during those two hours because that's a precious commodity. That's when you're being visited by the muse, right? This is when you are most creative and so you've got to leverage that. You've got to take advantage of that. Some people, by the way, find that they take a nap. During the day. They're good in the morning and then they're bad in the afternoon. They figure out if they take a nap midday, they can have two mornings. So whatever works for you, you've got to figure this out. This is super important for you to know what, what you know, your muse is, what set of circumstances allow you to be most creative. And in the old days, you know, way, way back when Michelangelo was painting, this is the Sibyl of Delphi. He painted on the, the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. Back then, they thought the muse was really fickle. I think you can manage the muse a little bit. But they thought the muse was really fickle and the muse wouldn't come to you sometimes. And so what they did is said, well, if the muse won't come to you, you got to go to the house of the muse. So they created back then this thing you've probably heard of, museums, house of the muse, right? And so you got to find your own muse. What is right for you? I doubt that it's museums, but but spend some time thinking about what's right for you. And so last of these five, these five habits, these five ideas about how you can be an innovator for life, is this one called Follow Your Passion. Let me go back to that. Follow Your Passion. and The thing about this, it sounds kind of corny. It sounds kind of trite, but this is really important. You know, because I got a lot of friends my age and I can put them into two buckets. The people who followed their passion and love their life, they love their career, they, they are happy most of the time, and people who did not, and for the most part, some of them are pretty miserable. Or, at best case, they're working for the weekend. Right, because all the fun happens on Saturday and Sunday, and that stuff during the week is awful. Right, and uh, try to avoid that fate if you can. I, I met Francis Ford Coppola last year. We were both in the same speaking calendar in um, Buenos Aires, Argentina, and and Coppola said this thing. He said, you know, it's kind of obvious, but he said, look, this is really simple. He said, do what you love, not because you just want to be, you know, self-interested. He says, do it because you'll be better at it. He says, I love wine, and so I have a winery, and I think it's pretty good. He said, I love food, and you know, so I have a restaurant business, and I have a pasta business. Right? He's starting a resort, apparently, in South America, and he says he uses all of those just to generate cash so he can finance his own movies. Right? And so pretty obvious, but I hadn't thought of it in those terms. Do, it, do what you love because you'll be better. You'll be willing to put in the extra time, the extra mental energy, because you love it. I saw, it's been several years ago, I saw uh, Jim Collins speak. Anybody read any of his books? He wrote two great books. Oh, a lot of people. So, Built to Last and then Good to Great, right? And it's several years ago, and he used no slides of any kind. He's drawn circles in the air like this. But there was something he said that has stuck with me. I remember it like it was yesterday. And he was talking, at first it seemed he was talking about companies, but as he got into it, it really seemed like he was talking to us each as individuals. And he said, trying to think of what you should do next, he says, think about these three circles. And the first circle is, what are you good at? He says, by the time you reach a certain age, most people have a sense of what they're good at. Right? He says, but watch out for this circle, because in this circle, he says, lives the curse of competence. Right? Just because you're good at something doesn't mean you should do it. He says, you might be, if you look around your school or your office, you might discover you're the fastest person you ever met with a keyboard. He says, does that mean you should be a data entry operator? Probably not, right? He said he was really good at math. And everybody said to him, Jim, you should be a math major. And so he listened to that advice, and he got to school. And he was, he continued to be good at math, but he ran into people living in the second circle. And the second circle is, what are you born to do? Right? When are you the happiest? When are you in a state of flow? And he said, he met people, I think it was mostly guys, he met people who were never happier than when they were solving equations, right? And doing proofs. And he said, you know, I realized that good as I was at math, this is not my true calling. Right? And so he thought about those two circles. Then he thought about this third one. He says, don't overemphasize this one, but you gotta think about it, which is, what will people pay you to do? Because he said, you know, they say do what you love and the money will follow. He says it's not literally true. He said his favorite thing is to listen to Brahms symphonies. He says there are Brahms symphonies I've listened to a hundred times and I have yet to find anybody who'll pay me a nickel to listen to (laughs) Brahms symphonies. So he says, think about this intersection. Think about where you are. Oh, and by the way, then he drew a little box around it and he said, then there's this other thing called who, right? He said, which is who you're going to work with? Who's on the bus with you? Because you can show up for work every day, and you can do stuff you're good at, and you can do stuff you're born to do, you can do stuff that people pay you to do, but if you're working with people that you hate, or that hate you, or that have no respect for you, still not going to be a happy camper. right? And so that's his kind of personal formula for this. And so he stopped speaking, as I will eventually here in a few minutes. And he stopped speaking, and I'm no kidding, he talked for an hour, and this was a small part of what he talked about, but 100% of the questions were about the three circles. In fact, 99% of the questions were about this circle here. What are you born to do? Because people kind of have a sense of what they're good at. It's pretty, there's a pretty efficient job market telling you what people will pay you to do, but what am I born to do? That's a much harder question. And Jim said, well, I can't answer that question for you, but I can answer it for me. He said, I was a kind of a nerdy kid. When I was a kid, I'd get out my magnifying glass and I would watch a bug. He says, and I'd get one of these old-style laboratory notebooks and I'd write down my observations. Every day I'd watch that bug and how does he eat and does he sleep and what's the bug doing all day? He admitted up front he was a nerdy kid, right? Anyhow, so that's what he would do. And so he said he found himself at this point in life, he was working for Hewlett-Packard, great company, which he openly acknowledges, but he wasn't happy. And so he said he got out one of those those laboratory notebooks, and he wrote on it a bug at the top, and then he wrote a bug called Jim. And for two years he kept a laboratory notebook on himself. It wasn't a journal. He wasn't writing down the occurrences of the day. He wrote down during the day, during each day for two years, when did I feel at my best? When was I in a state of flow? When did I feel the happiest? Because that's really important. And he said it took him two years of discovery. This is the tortoise mind again. It took him two years of discovery, but he eventually figured out he was happiest when he was teaching and when he was working on systems, you know, things with lots of little complexity complexities a moving part and he said figured out I should be teaching about systems and so he did and I think he taught about systems at Stanford for a while as well until he found a, another calling but he kept a lab notebook on himself and so I've actually made this suggestion to somebody who's very near and dear to me and that person followed this advice and got some value on it and so if you're wondering if you're drawing those three circles in your head and you're wondering what am I born to do I would encourage you to try this lab notebook it's an experiment right can't hurt Right, so you know, the, on this thing about following your passions, the, you know, I think the definitive word comes from this, this uh, British historian, Arnold Toynbee, who says the supreme achievement in life is to blur the line between work and play. And that is what I try to do at IDEO, that's what I think a lot of my colleagues do as near as I can tell that's what Tina Seelig does, blur the line between work and play where you say, wait are we working here or not, I lost track, and if I get paid to do this, this is pretty good. Right? And so that's what you want to seek out. If you can follow your passions, if you can blur that line between work and play, that, that is almost the formula for a great life. So, look, there were five of these, right? Five, seven plus or minus two. There, there are five ideas, five habits, five things that you can do. And the first one was, think like a traveler, turn up that piece of your brain, right? So that you can do those observations all the time, so that you can be the person who develops this, this uh, deep and up-to-date knowledge of what's happening around them. Uh, around you. There's the second one was treat life as an experiment. Be willing to fail a little bit. Be willing to, uh, you know, as, as long as there's learning attached, be willing to have some things not go as well. Be willing to look a little silly in front of your peers because sometimes experimentation re- re- requires that. The third one was nurture an attitude of wisdom as uh, Bob Sutton would urge us to do that thing about having confidence but distrusting your knowledge just enough to, uh, you know, to keep, to keep searching. Uh, That's number three. Number four was use your whole brain and your tortoise mind. The tortoise mind being to me the more interesting of the two in certain ways because most people are conscious of this left brain right brain thing. And then five, follow your passions. Try to blur the line between work and play. And if you can do those things, if you can develop these five habits, if you can get a kind of innovation momentum going, then you can nurture and build and reinforce your own creativity And you can stay young at heart and be an innovator for life. Thank you very much. So as part of that experiment where I went through material for the first time, it, I talked slightly longer than I was supposed to, and so we have a whopping three minutes for questions. Uh, I'll be around afterwards signing books and things if you had questions. So there's a question there in the back and a microphone up here. I think uh, you can either shout it out or approach that mic. I have a stupid question. Okay, it's a stupid question. These are the best kind. Treat life as an experiment. Why do you have a blue stripe in all your presentation, all your presentation slides? Okay, the question is, why is there blue stripe in my audio, in my uh, visual presentation? This is really important. We've got to the heart of the matter here. And the answer is, when I made this, uh, this one is missing the blue stripe at the top. But when I made this presentation a long time ago, so this is all graphic design by Tom Kelly. There was this, um, there was this point of view that said that, remember TVs, the old ones, the CRT based TVs, that a squarish TV was old and assumed to be outdated. Whereas all the cool, flat-panel, high-definition TVs were more stretched, had an aspect ratio for the graphic designers and engineers, and it was much wider, right? So this was cool, and this was old-fashioned. And so following that, that basic thought, I wanted mine to be cool and distinctive from, because people get tired of PowerPoint, right? It is actually the software underlying this presentation. I wanted it to seem fresher and newer. And... So, uh, lacking the full complement of graphic design skills, I just stuck with that template. So, glad we got that one out of the way. So, anybody want to talk about design or innovation or creativity or any of those? A question? What's the coolest thing we ever designed? Oh, what's the coolest thing we ever designed? So, as Tina said, we're off onto designing experiences now. But if we stick with products, coolest thing we ever designed, easy answer right because we did all we made all these billions of dollars for people you know the Crest Neat Squeeze Toothpaste Tube the Palm 5 fabulously profitable products but my favorite by far is called the HeartStream Defibrillator for all I know there's one out in the lobby of this building HeartStream Defibrillator is this this technology that used to be in a giant cart that sold that sold for $60,000 and was used in the operating room right or in the emergency room and you've all seen this on TV it's when they put the metal plates on the person's chest and they You're like this, you know, it bounces them at this. Shock is so big it bounces them off the table, right? And our client, it was a startup company in uh, Seattle, came up with a way to shrink that down and make it cheaper so that it could be in a police car, so that you could have one in the lobby of the building and stuff like that, except it needed an interface. It needed a way so that someone completely untrained, you know, it's a flight attendant, someone working at a train station could use it, and we made this interface so incredibly dirt simple. It's got a big one and a big two and a big three that when my daughter, Maya, was six years old, six years old, never showed her any instruction of any kind, I handed her this thing. Oh, I disabled the shock. The parents in the room are worried about that. I handed this and said, Maya, see if you can make this work and I swear to God, my six-year-old daughter could have saved a life if anybody had let her at the time. So, wow, you make it so a six-year-old girl can, can operate it you know, without instructions, that's pretty good. And so I am certain, we've said, well, the product has saved many hundreds of lives, and I'm certain there are people walking around alive today who would otherwise be dead because that interface is so simple. You go into cardiac arrest, you've got six minutes maximum to live. Right? And so any kind of fumbling, any kind of reading instructions, even opening the unit. We had designed it originally like a laptop, and people fumble with that darn latch. And the designers behind the screen saying, you stupid user. You know, just, it's just a button. Oh, just open it up. But the anthropologist is saying, hey, must make it simpler. Got to save those lives. And so easy question, heart stream defibrillator. Toughest design project. We are working on a project now that I think falls into the category called wicked projects, as in impossible. But since the you know since the client's still under wraps, I can't I can't talk about it. So sorry about that. Toughest, toughest. There are um, you know the American Red Cross one was quite challenging because there aren't many things like this in in the world, let alone in America, in which you know, we, all of us, you know, Stanford Hospital, one you know, of the you know, finest hospitals in America is right next to us, but if you go into Stanford Hospital and you need blood, you, know, you need a, a transfusion, you are entirely dependent on the goodwill of others to, to donate that blood. And not just to donate it once in a while, but donate it in a continuous basis in a way that we can maintain our inventory levels. And so, that was quite a challenging project, and we think we have some ideas, we, it's not fully proven out, it's not fully implemented yet, but there is this pretty radical idea about focusing on the donor instead of focusing on the recipient that we think might bear fruit. What do you think most companies can do to most individuals can be much more innovative? What could they change about themselves once they hire thousands of people, training for Okay, so question is, how do companies get more innovative? And wow, now we're on a topic I know about, right? So um, I've written two books on that subject exactly. And so I, you know, I say just by example, two of the companies that I've seen the biggest change in in my whole career were Samsung and Procter & Gamble. And there was a series of things that both had charismatic leaders, um, both you know, had this, this momentous change where they said, okay, must fix this right? But um, in both cases a whole series of things At Samsung, the most radical idea was let's have the older people listen to the younger people just a little bit. As far as I know, that had never happened in the history of Samsung before. It was a very autocratic organization. But they also set up, they set up design centers around the world because they wanted this antennae, they called them, you know, antennae to bring in new learning. And Procter and Gamble, it's a series of things. It's a culture of brainstorming. It's, um, it's more than anything, it's this idea about humility. It's this idea that we don't have to have all the solutions when A.G. Lafley, their great CEO, came into power, he said, look, I I want you to switch from being problem solvers to being solution finders. You can imagine his R&D team at the time said, yeah, okay, boss, the new speak, uh, stop saying problem solvers, start saying solution finders. They thought it was all semantics. But in fact... It was a sea change for the company because it was a company with great pride, great R&D team. And up until then, they thought no matter what the challenge, they had to build it themselves because we have the best chemists, we have the smartest people on the planet is what they're thinking. And they do have very bright people. But when they switched to this solution finder mode, what they said was it would be foolish for us to try to solve this problem ourselves. If somebody else, if a PhD student in Jakarta has been working on this for seven years, we want to start with what they know. We want to license it, we want to buy it, we want to hire that person, we want to tap into that knowledge. And so right now, you get no extra credit for developing a solution yourselves. You get extra credit for finding it somewhere in the world and and bringing it in. And so there's this whole language in companies about not invented here, and it just went completely away at Procter & Gamble. You can't even voice that idea because your friends will say, well, you didn't get the memo, right? The CEO said he wants at least 50% of the ideas come from the outside, and it has opened up their company. You can see it in their you know, the rate of new product introduction. You can see it in the culture of the company um, because they made that change. So, but I, uh, two books. Uh, yeah, I re- recommend the, the second one if you want to... Go into that thing. And I see. All right. So, on behalf of BASIS and STVP, thank you very much, Tom, for your participation. Thank you very much.